rather than hiring an army of, of sub $20 an hour guys, it's more, we'll have fewer positions, but they'll be in the 30 to $40 range where people are in these highly, highly productive roles. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Over the past decade, we've seen many different digital marketplaces emerge that match people who need a task performed with people who can perform that task. Think Uber and Lyft for rides, DoorDash and Grubhub for food, Instacart for grocery delivery, and so on. And during a time when finding labor is among many companies' greatest challenges, there's plenty that the manufacturing sector can learn from what's become known as the gig economy. But at the same time, for most of the frontline workers in these gig economy jobs, they're exactly that, gigs, not necessarily careers. What the manufacturing sector needs right now is sustained labor, both on the front line and in the highly skilled, often technical jobs. My guest today came from the gig economy, and he's here to tell you not only what he learned from those experiences and how those learnings can be applied in the manufacturing sector, but also to share some out-of-the-box thinking about sourcing and upskilling our manufacturing workforce. Let me introduce him. Jason Radisson is founder and CEO of Shift One, a platform that's helping solve the global shortage of skilled frontline workers with more than 300,000 users from nurses to solar technicians. Jason learned startup skills early in life. He was born to a 16-year-old single mom and worked blue-collar jobs from short-order cook to HVAC technician to fund school and climb out of poverty. From that inauspicious start, Jason went on to Harvard a Fulbright Scholarship, and McKinsey and & Company. Since becoming an entrepreneur, Jason has worked with more than a dozen first-tier VC firms. In the early days of Uber, Jason was a launcher and regional general manager in the Western US. From there, he joined Brazil's 99 Taxis as COO, where he grew the business 10X and sold it for 1 billion. Jason spends his time outside of work with his spouse and their small children, He's also a lifelong distance runner, cyclist, and skier. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Well, Jason, we'll hop right into it here. We've we've seen a lot of different labor marketplaces emerge over the last few years, but I know you have a somewhat unique perspective at Shift One. So can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking differently about the staffing industry? Yeah. Thanks, Joe. We're um, really building a staffing killer here. We think that... Um, you know, there is an opportunity to build the platform of choice for millions of workers in frontline jobs, frontline professionals, frontline workers in all different areas of the economy. We think it's one of the biggest problems in the world these days. And we're definitely seeing it in the U.S. with everything that's been going on the last several years. 
in our you know perspective or from our perspective, the staffing industry has been trying to solve the problem of worker shortages and trying to make the market happen with a very local kind of traditional retail model. If you look at the staffing platforms and some of the tech plays out there, they've been running part of the gig economy playbook, but but not really what the market needs. And I think the solution that we've been seeing or the way they've been approaching it is by trying to hire an army of casual workers. You know, this worked when we were talking about trying to get people to take a part-time job driving a car, moving strangers or packages in their car. If you're talking about someone's production or someone's field engineering workforce uh, or someone's nursing staff, it's not a casual thing. Uh, it's, these are serious jobs and these are people's main way of earning a living. And so the platforms are, there. we really see them out there doing this kind of mass hiring, mass churn, churn and burn of, of minimum wage jobs. So at Shift One, we really, we aim to, to solve that problem uh, by, by building the most automated and the most frictionless experience for the workers out there, really make it easy for a professional or for a worker to join and to get into the job of their choice. And for our clients, for our clients to access workers when they otherwise wouldn't be able to access that workforce. And we do that on a national scale. And we're even uh, at this point in four foreign markets where we've also launched our platform and, and have a sizable workforce. So I, I think it's, it, it's the time is right. There is, you know, this is one of the biggest problems in society. And, you know, the, the, the market is really ripe and, and looking for a solution that's not staffing and that's not having, you know, a casual worker drop in for three hours and then never come back. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think there's a big difference between filling some extra, you know, downtime you have with, you know, delivering food or driving people around town. And and of course, you know, some people do make their 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 career out of it right at this point. But it's yeah. it's probably a big difference between that and somebody who's got a, a skill that they have, you know, gone to trade school for or you know, developed through their work experiences and they're looking for a, a more permanent, longer term solution. So I think it's probably easy to, you know, to, to kind of look past that and say, oh, match workers with jobs, but very different situations, I imagine, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think the, the real the real magic in the industry and the place that we definitely are North Star are skilled positions. And, you know, when you start talking two or three times minimum wage, you know, you're really talking a national market. And I think for employers out there, it should really be a focus. You know, it's 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 not we're not looking to eliminate employment. We're basically looking to upgrade employment. We anyway are a high road employer. We treat our, our people well. We give them benefits. We, we take good care of them and develop them. And I think the manufacturing industry, you know, along with a lot of other, our other core client constituencies, really should be, should be aiming to, to transform those entry-level minimum wage jobs into something better with more advanced systems and, and more advanced means of production. And then, you know, it does, it actually kind of counterintuitively gets easier to solve those problems because, you know, a field engineer or a traveling engineer or, you know, a traveling medical professional, you can afford to pay travel expenses. You can afford to relocate people. 
And then you can really kind of free up and make the whole country your talent pool. And if you can virtualize it a little bit, you really make the whole world your potential talent pool. So part of what we do see our role in the economy is, is working with our clients to really help them kind of get to that next level of employee and, you know, help on the employee side to help our guys get to that next level of skills. So Jason, we've sort of mentioned here that you came from the gig economy, you know, the world of Uber, where you're, you know, essentially a marketplace for getting people where they need to go or DoorDash, where you're you know, delivering food to people who are looking to have food delivered. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, you've kind of stated already that the difference in, in really mindset of somebody looking for a longer term job, for example, versus what happens in yeah. the gig, gig economy where it's it's not so so permanent, right? But what are some of the essential learnings that you have taken from your experience working in that gig economy that you think are relevant to the labor market and manufacturing right now? Yeah, 100%. So I think what, you know, a couple of, of important technological differences, when you're talking about a gig platform, we built our platforms from high scale, highly automated processes backwards. So minimum amount of sort of worker professional input, and then a highly automated platform for all things HR and training and otherwise. Um, I think that's a key difference to everything else that's out there for those people who are dealing with traditional HR systems, traditional ERPs, those are built from internal processes forward. So they're built for what your HR team needs to get done and to be sort of tools for them. It's not built from sort of a, a automated optimum of what the easiest way is to employ and keep somebody employed. And that's one key difference. The platforms are just built for scale. We would, in a city launch, think nothing of hiring 5,000 people a week in a neighborhood. It's just the kind of scale that you can get into. It's definitely one and even two orders of magnitude more efficient than traditional HR teams and tools. I think the other piece of it is, you know, the marketplace is really a marketplace. And, you know, we had a number of marketplace levers that we could pull. And this is a little bit more difficult in the manufacturing environment, but we definitely do this day in, day out. We counsel, advise, help with change management, our clients all the time in terms of finding the right wages. If the wages aren't keeping up to market, aren't close enough to market, then, you know, on some level, the client's going to suffer. They're either not going to get enough people, they're going to be of the wrong qualifications, the wrong quality, they won't last, you know, a number of other things. Advertising will be through the roof. You know, you just end up paying, if the wages are off, you end up paying somewhere else. So a big part of what we're doing, it's not surge pricing, you know, but we're helping our clients get a real data-driven read of the market. And then we set wages and we set other incentives with them. So those are a couple of just the big, basic, fund, fun, fundamental pieces of, of building a large-scale team with a marketplace that really transfer in our world in manufacturing. Jason, when we spoke a few weeks ago, you made some really interesting analogies when talking about the future of highly skilled jobs in manufacturing. In some professional fields like consulting, 
you see, you know, the earliest years of someone's career spent traveling and executing, you know, different jobs in different places, wherever, you know, maybe the, the client is. And then during the pandemic, you saw a more mobile workforce with nurses, for example, where, you know, they were, would be sent yep. maybe where they were needed. And I know you have some thoughts about how such a model might be applied with engineers or other highly skilled manufacturing roles in, in the near future. Definitely, definitely. I think the, you know, the consulting model of you graduate from college and you work for your first firm or two. I was consulting, it's accounting CPAs. There's, there's definitely a career path there. I think that career model is going to more broadly apply to engineering and other STEM jobs, health and other STEM jobs. And we're already starting to see the beginning of that. There are, are you know, in, if you look at clean tech in particular, if you look at healthcare in particular, there's sort of this whole notion and career path where you spend the first five to 10 years of your career traveling all over the country. You know, that could be even broader if we could do, you know, some, some cross certification, you could spend some of that in another English speaking country or another, another place altogether. I think that's the future of, you know, what we consider our frontline workforce. I think it's going to be a very kind of modern, natural thing to spend, you know, let's call it roughly those first 10 years post post degree traveling, if you want, uh, until you want, you know, to sort of settle down in one place. Um, and I think one of, one of the other things that we're seeing now in this stage of the economy with the demographics that we have is we're also seeing the older workforce kind of moving back into that model. If you're an empty nester and, you know, you've got a ton of experience, it's a great opportunity also to see the world, see at least the country and go on the road in some of these jobs. They lend themselves so well to a platform model also. You know, we're able to advertise in a very different way than our client plants or, you know, even client headquarters are able to do. We can go in and out of markets. We can develop our database of potential workers all over the country kind of simultaneously. And over time, it really builds up into an amazing pool of talent. And that, I think, is going to be one of the key differentiators down the road is we are just going to have so much more database and access to a skilled workforce than any one employer that it's going to be very compelling for, you know, companies like, like ours to just help make that part of the economy work and kind of be the, you know, the new big five, big four, but for frontline workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept. It Makes a lot of sense, frankly. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Mary, take it away. Yes, so I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Mary Keough. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50-plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations. We meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to get better at a manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value. 
no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. Oh, and on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where our attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together all week long between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. So you and I talked about a lot of different ways to think about filling jobs from nearshoring select parts of a manufacturer's operations to providing transportation for workers in places that like you, d- you described as transportation deserts. Can you talk through some ideas in this arena? I mean, I'm kind of thinking out of the box a little bit that our, our listeners yeah. might not be thinking about already. Absolutely, absolutely. So a very typical kind of client profile for us is, you know, let's say a mid- Midwestern manufacturing company. Uh, they might have their DCs in the Southeast and on the coast and kind of the typical setup and then manufacturing generally in a number of plants in the Midwest. And, and what we see in those plants is typically it's really hard to get workers. If it's, if it's hard to get workers in northern New Jersey, it's very hard to get workers in rural Ohio. And, you know, part of what we've been dealing with, we call it kind of the physics problem because, you know, we literally can't manufacture workers and generally at that sort of entry-level pay grade, uh, the economics just don't work out to fly people all over. So, you know, we've had to dig really deep. It's something that we, we did in the gig economy also when we really had to come up with drivers when the chips were down and we really need to add to our workforce. And there are a number of tactics there that have just applied well to the manufacturing environment. And as you mentioned, one of them is providing worker transportation. So, we found that, you know, there are cities throughout the country where, and, and, and small towns throughout the country where there just isn't local employment. And so being able to connect those workers to a job that might be 45 minutes away with reliable transportation is really important and can open things up. There's also a natural kind of population of workers that just doesn't have access to a car for whatever reasons. They might be cultural reasons. They might be just plain old social economic reasons. They can't afford it. Other things like that. And it's really sort of a, a broader social benefit in terms of like just being able to help people and families and communities by, by providing some of that job-related transportation. That's a big one. There are a number of jobs, if it can be done in any way remotely, that we've been able to nearshore also. And for us, we typically go to Latin America and there's... You know, in the big cities of Latin America, there's a ready supply of bilingual folks, you know, very well educated with great experience and, and quite often with a bunch of technical background. And if the job can be done remotely, as said, we can we can connect that person. We can connect a team, a nearshore team who's thrilled to be able to work in the U.S. And, you know, they can remotely support a rural plant, you know, be it on HR or other kind of service roles in a way that the plant might not have been able to get done locally. The plant does need to gigify it a little bit. They kind of need to carve out the things that can be done remotely, but in that way, they can make their local staff kind of stretch further and kind of off offload and, and nearshore out all, all of that other work that, that we're able to take on. We have some other programs. We do have a guest worker, a high volume guest worker program where we help through our Latin American subsidiaries 
We help move trained workers, experienced workers to the U.S. for a period of months. It can be up to a couple of years, depending on what visa status we get them and sort of what the local market conditions are. That's another sort of tactic that we have. And then I would say just there are a bunch of short-term, generally wage and incentive-based things where, you know, and, and this is very much coming from sort of the gig economy playbook, but where we're offering incentives to just help make sure that our clients are winning locally, uh, that they have the best sort of employer value proposition. And some of those are, you know, uh, there's always like sort of the, the 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 equity balancing in the plant, you know, oh, my guys are making this much, I can't increase wages by that much. Incentives are a great way to sort of align a new workforce coming in without too much disrupting sort of the salary levels of the plant. And those are things that we're really kind of as a third party uniquely able to do. We can kind of, you know, uh, deploy those incentives go out there and tap into different talent pools that sometimes our clients wouldn't want to go out directly without offering. Mm -hmm. But those are a couple of the, you know, just we've, we've had to dig really deep. It's been, you know, a couple of challenging years with the pandemic. As most of us in manufacturing know, it was challenging before the pandemic. And now things have just really gotten exacerbated. And I think we're even entering this next phase where we're seeing a lot of attendance issues, which are just due to long COVID they're due to just kind of Omicron and the next variant coming through. And it's, you know, if we lost, you know, 5% to attendance in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere anyway in the given year, now we might be losing 10% of attendance or 12 or 15% of attendance even. So a lot of plants are just really struggling to fill that extra little gap. And that's really where all of these tactics come in. Jason, what else do you have to say about how you see the labor market evolving in the years ahead? Yeah, I, I, I think, look, you know, given the challenges that we have, there's a real incentive out there for us to get more efficient with labor. I think, um, you know, we're, we're looking at, and I mean, in particular, entry level labor and, and finding ways to automate processes that are entry, otherwise dependent on entry level labor since it's gotten so challenging. So I think we'll see more automation, more of those, you know, packing, packaging jobs uh, being done by robots, you know, a lot more of kind of standard production and machine operation jobs being done automated in an automated fashion. You know, I think overall it, it kind of, it eventually lifts all boats. I, I think it means that, you know, rather than hiring an army of, of sub $20 an hour guys, it's more will have fewer positions, but they'll be in the 30 to $40 range mm. where people are in these highly, highly productive roles. So I think it's a real burden, you know, on eventually on our upskilling in the economy in, at large and sort of on techni technical institutions and colleges and universities to really make sure that we have that workforce trained and ready to go. I also think that it's a key area that, that our platform can really help serve in the economy. We have a lot of, of upskilling programs, and I think the upskilling programs are just going to be more and more important. We're able to kind of uniquely also tie that to different job opportunities. We can, we can directly relate it. You know, one of our professionals can upskill, and then we can deploy them into that new job with those new job requirements with that new higher salary. It's a real killer combination in terms of just helping to make those pieces come together. But I think that's, you know, that's where the economy's headed. It really is an overall 
increase in, in job requirements that we're going to see and wages that go along with it. And I think it's on, on all of us who, who work with frontline workers to give them tools and, and solutions to help, you know, fit themselves into the new job requirements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you make some good points there. You know, I've had a lot of conversations about labor and, you know, how things may evolve on this podcast. And, you know, one, one thing I hear about upskilling that I think is is interesting is, you know, you look at welders, for example, like, you know, that, that's one of the places where you've got these frontline jobs where you just have a, a mass exodus with with the boomer generation retiring and not yeah. enough people coming in to, to do those jobs. And you look at the stats down the road and how, how what a challenge it's going to be. And you say, well, if we can't hire enough welders, well, there's there's automation, there's welding robots, but then there's an opportunity to take people with the welding skill set and teach them how to program welding robots, right? And that's just exactly. maybe one example, but you'll see that in, yeah. I imagine, in all parts of manufacturing where it's how do we take people who already have these skills and you know create other opportunities for them that maybe are less physical and less physically demanding which has has its benefits for people who don't want to do those jobs or the aging you know end of the workforce that maybe is just worn out from doing those physical jobs but their knowledge is so important had a great conversation on the show a few weeks ago yeah. with Will Healy about about that exact topic but so yeah I, I love hearing all these different perspectives and yours in, included here when it comes to you know how do we upskill people how do we get them into different roles make you of their their knowledge and maybe get them into right. jobs that they really want to do. Yeah, 100%. And I do, I think we're going to see that being on location will become more and more optional. Mm -hmm. um, as, you know, as mentioned, if, if you are in the business of programming welding robots, there's going to be a part of that that you might be able to do from your home office, you know, and, and potentially for many different employers, you know, or potentially, you know, you kind of fly in for a couple of weeks to help get somebody up and running and then fly on to the next client or the next plant. So I, I do, I, I think there's, there is going to be this model where, you know, this combination of remote work and manufacturing um, and, you know, highly skilled workers that are kind of flying in and out is just going to be kind of the way of the future. We're definitely preparing for it. Jason, great talk today. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Shift One? Joe, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Audience members can look us up at shiftone.net. That's S-H-I-F-T-O-N-E dot N-E-T. They can reach us there. Our phone numbers are listed there. What I would say is we are out there solving problems. So generally, our first conversation is finding out what gaps you might have in, in productive capacity. You know, if, if you want, we can take you through a demo of our software. And then we pretty quickly get to sort of the brass tacks about how to solve local uh, labor problems for you. So look us up, shift1.net. Perfect. Well, Jason, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thank you as well. All right. Have a good one, Joe. You bet. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.